0: Therefore God gave them up in the uh, the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions— They are filled, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your Word and for this man who will present it to us. We pray, God, our hearts would hear and receive. And give, give Ryan your words for us today. May we be changed by them. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Rod.
1: Welcome, elementary age kids. <laughs> I know, in all seriousness, a part of our vision as a church. Uh, is that we would have our elementary age kids in corporate worship service with adults at least once a month. And the reason is we want to help them and disciple them up into worshiping with adults. In fact, they're not going to be isolated with their own age, age group for the, for the rest of their lives, right? And so we want to see that happen. And our vision uh, as, a, as a ministry to, to, to our younger people is to come alongside parents as you disciple uh, your children. And, and I don't, I don't uh, curate uh, the, the, the weeks that the kids are going to be in here. And so we, we, we did give a warning to you to say, hey, read, th- read through this. And I would argue this, there's never been a better time to have kids in this room this morning. Okay, so, uh, and, uh, and, and here's the reason why. Today I have the pleasure as a man under God's authority uh, to preach to you what many say is the most offensive passage in all of the Bible. Uh, Today, our text covers atheism, idolatry, homosexuality, God's wrath, people are called fools, and then there's this long list of vices at the end. So if you are offended today, and I'm sure you will be, you are not alone. And if you have any feedback, here is my best email up here on the screen right now. So so, uh, we'll get the timing better in second service. All right, it's good, it's good. Uh, So here's here's what's happened in Romans chapter 1. Paul, uh, Paul is kind of undressing our false attempts for gaining a righteous standing on our own. And he's showing us who we really are and what that really means, what it really means to be a part of, uh, what it really means to live apart from Jesus. And it, guys, it's really, really bad news. Uh, today I was really tempted to kind of infuse the gospel and let us off the hook too early. Paul does not do that. I'm not going to do that today because we need to feel it this morning. Uh, we're accustomed, you know, so, so the, the news is bad. And, you know, we're accustomed to having a curated news feed uh, in the 21st century. Uh, and it's curated to what we're actually interested in, to what we want to hear. In fact, uh, we, we have an algorithm that kind of feeds us the news that we want to hear. But the unbiased truth of God's Scripture and, his, and the scriptures that we read, the Bible that you hold in your hands is different. The, algor- the algorithm of the Bible is God's heart for us. God is precisely revealing his heart about our condition to us. And this morning, before it can be good news to us in Romans chapter 8, it's got to be bad news in Romans chapter 1 through 3. And so uh, that's why we really need to be dialed in this morning. Uh, This is the only space where you are going to experience the love of God so deeply that he tells us the real truth about who we are apart from him. And to the degree that which we actually believe what we're going to talk about this morning will be exactly the degree to which the gospel becomes real power and life to us. So here's our big idea for today. I wanted to get cute with it. I really wanted to say more than I needed to, but here it is. Everyone is accountable to God for sin. It's just as simple as that this morning. Everyone is accountable to sin. So we're gonna explore this text by asking three questions. And these three questions are this. Why do we need the gospel? Why does God's wrath stand against us? And where does idolatry ultimately lead us? So let's dig into this together. Why do we need the gospel? Well, we need the gospel because God's wrath is being revealed against sin. And Romans 1.18 tells us this. On July 6th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon that turned the world upside down and started the most significant re- revival that this country has ever seen before. It wasn't a sermon on, on how to get better uh, or how to be more righteous on our own. The title of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was, it was a sermon about the promise of God's wrath that would be poured out on sinners that are not in Jesus. And one of the things he says in it is this. He says, and I'm summarizing. Imagine a very thin thread as the only thing holding you up from the pit of hell. So nimble that nearly anything can cause it to snap. And that thread is the thread of God's grace, his common grace standing between us and eternal destruction. And if you're not in Christ, it's only a matter of time before the thread breaks. Now, guys, when he was preaching this sermon, he he wasn't... um, a super extemporaneous guy. He didn't really have that big of a personality. He was actually reading the sermon. And and as the sermon hit the hearts of his hearers, the the observers of this said that that people were moaning and they were crying out, who could deliver us so so much so that many times he had to stop the sermon because it was so loud in the room. He was serious, serious. About What is to come? Are we that serious, friends? Are we serious about the real nature of what it means to be accountable for our own sin? Our culture is not. And it will not tell you this. So that that sermon that people would ask, what should I do to be saved, kind of like in an Acts 2 fashion, was so powerful that it sparked the first great awakening in this nation. God's wrath against sin, such great power for us this morning. God's exercising wrath against sin and sinners is hard for us to stomach, isn't it? If we're honest, we would rather have a misdiagnosis of our condition than to sit face to face with God's word. But Paul won't stand for it. In fact, the structure of the next three weeks is this. Uh, today we're looking at the fact that no one's righteous. So this is this is kind of to the Gentile audience, or we could say this is to the people that don't have a Bible. Okay, the desert island kind of people. Right. The next week is going to be to the Jews, or we could say to the people that have a Bible, and then the next week is going to be uh, to all of the whole human race. If we don't believe in God's wrath against sin, the gospel will never thrill our hearts, friends. We'll never get there. So let's read Romans 1.18 one more time. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteous living suppress the truth. So what is God's wrath? You could define it a lot of different ways, but I think at its essence it's this. It is his settled, controlled, and determined hatred towards sin. His settled, controlled and determined hatred against sin and the actions that follow. The reality of God's wrath is that he will judge every single person that's ever sinned on the face of the planet for all of time. He knows every sin in thought, in word, and in deed that you and I will ever commit. And because he is just, he cannot and will not remain neutral on the matter. I think we imagine, a lot of times we imagine in our sin, we imagine that God's just kind of neutral on it. He's he's not neutral because he's just. He has to be a God of his word. So Paul says in this passage that the results of his wrath mean that to some degree, we're actually already experiencing the effects of his wrath on this earth. But because he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love, we do not experience the full brunt of his wrath being poured out on sin yet. But Romans 2.5, as we'll look at next week, says that we will receive the full effects of God's wrath at the second coming of Jesus. That's when it will all be poured out. And there'll be two destinations. Those that are in Christ <clears throat> will be shielded from the wrath of God because it's all been poured out on Jesus. And those that stand alone in a faith that isn't a saving faith will receive the full brunt of the wrath of God. And before we go on thinking that we're not that bad just because we didn't do blank, and that person did, James 2.10 says this, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point of it has become guilty of the whole thing. So what's the thesis for us this morning? You and I are guilty. That's the bottom line. We're all guilty and deserve his wrath. And it's on us, as Paul says, because we suppress the truth with our unrighteous living. Now, that word in the Greek is this compound word, kata, meaning down or back, and echo, meaning to hold. So, the, our ungodliness, and, and what I mean by that is we're living like God does not exist, that there are no consequences for our actions. Our ungodliness literally holds back the agenda of the truth in the world and in our own lives, it mutes the truth. Because our lives as image bearers are meant to reveal the truth. We are called to reflect him because we are made in his image, right? But our unrighteous living distorts, dilutes, and mutes the image of God in all of us. And this draws the wrath of God against us. So now, Paul anticipates that we're going to push back on this. It's uncomfortable. You're already offended. I've been offended all week. Welcome to the party. Um, so he proceeds and he answers our concerns. He, he's, he's, so, so we ask, if God made me, how can I be under his, gra- his, his wrath? Isn't he a God of love? What's he doing to me? If God made me, how could he consider me guilty? This can't be love. It's what the world says. It's what we often say, isn't it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul goes on to tell us. Point two here. Why does God's wrath stand against us? The scriptures say it's because of our idolatry. Let me ask you this as we get into this. Have you ever made a really bad trade before? Like like a super bad one. Like you, it, it was not a good deal. You look back, and you're like, man, I wish I could have got that one back. Um, uh, maybe maybe you're like uh, me, like while playing Monopoly, uh, you convince uh, someone to trade you uh, for uh park place or boardwalk in exchange for Baltic Avenue. I've done that before. I did it to my youth group kids. I loved it. I love to take advantage of them because then I would teach them a lesson. I would say, hey, teach, learn this as a lesson. Don't make bad trades, thus saith the Lord, right? Um, you know, we, we, we make bad trades. The scriptures say that we've made the ultimate bad trade. We've exchanged the image of God for images reflecting the creation, right? We've, we've, tr- we've, we've traded We've traded creature for creator, right? We've, we've, we've made the ultimate bad trade. And in the Bible, we see that we're actually always making bad trades in our human nature. In our fallen nature, we keep exchanging these cheap momentary pleasures for eternal glory, whether that be trading, uh, like Esau trading a bowl of stew for your birthright, or like Judas, it was a little darker for him, right? Trading 30 pieces of silver for his savior, We just keep making bad trades. And the Bible calls those bad trades or those exchanges idolatry. So what's idolatry? you you, You say, I don't have any statues in my house. I'm like, I don't know. I think you probably do, right? We wear our statues, right? We drive our statues. We live in our statues. What's an idol? Keller, the expert on idolatry, says this. It is anything that absorbs your heart in your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. We're all guilty of these exchanges, this idolatry. Sometimes it's a momentary slip, other times it is a lifelong pursuit. Let's read again Romans 1:19 through 23, as we think about these exchanges, these, this idolatry. Paul says this, for what can be made known to God is plain to them. And when he says them in this passage, he's talking predominantly about the lost Gentile culture um, that, frankly, is not much different than our culture today, um, that the Roman church is being birthed in. He says, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, us, are without excuse. (laughs) For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, in other words, incapable of making sound judgment in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged, there's our word, the glory of the immortal God for images, it's a key word in our text today, resembling mortal man and birds and even animals and creeping things. So Paul says this, that every person on a desert island or not, with a Bible or not, in a church or not, is guilty and we all know better. And we all know better for at least two reasons, Paul says. We know better because of creation and because of our consciences that God has given us because we're made in his image. We know better because of creation, he says. Verse 20, that being alive in this world shows us that there is a unique design Theologically, this is called general revelation, that we know that there is a God, that he has a design for us, and that he's awesome in power and greatness because I stand here today in this world, because you experienced the sunshine yesterday, because you saw the ocean or a mountain or a great sunset. You know there is a creator, and you know he has an agenda and a design for your life. You know it. And there is no excuse the scriptures say for not following him and obeying him because you know it. Psalms 19 1 and 2 says this the heavens, they're actually speaking, they're declaring the glory of God. And the sky above is proclaiming his handiwork, his design. Day to day, he's pouring out speech, and night, he is revealing knowledge to us. Friends, we are all without excuse. And God allows us to experience him through creation, but that's not it. He says, we know better because of our conscience. Because we choose to not honor God with our lives, as Paul says, and to not live thankfully in his presence, something actually happens. So every time that we choose not to honor God with our lives and to not live thankfully in his presence, something is actually happening in your heart. You're not remaining neutral. The scriptures say that our foolish hearts are becoming more dark, right? Because we are suppressing and holding back and holding down this truth of who we know God to be. The darkness that we have in our hearts always shows up in our lives. We are what we love and we worship what we love. We are without excuse because we plagiarize the truth. You ever been caught plagiarizing before? I don't expect you to raise your hand, but if you have, you'll, you'll really relate to this. And we've all plagiarized to some degree. every week, I just go to Sermons.com, so um, <laughs> that's a joke. Um, when we first got married, Megan was a teacher in fifth grade, and, um, and Wikipedia was just becoming a thing, right?) <clears throat> And you guys know where I'm going with this. Um, So this little girl in Megan's class writes this phenomenal paper. And she's like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And then all of a sudden she's like, this seems too good to be true. Hops on the Google real quick, types in the first like six words of it. It is an entire copy and pasted Wikipedia article. Like no shame. Like no way the teacher's gonna find this one out. You know what the worst thing about it was? Her mom was a teacher. (laughs) Anyway, Paul is saying that this is the essence of idolatry. We're all cosmic plagiarists. We take what God has done and we live like we are the creators and designers and the ones that get to determine the qualifications of our lives. We take the credit, we steal from him. We act as if we are independent beings that live outside of all the limits. We claim to be wise and we claim that we've done it all. We plagiarize the truth. I love what Keller said about this. I was reading this week. He said, It's like, it's almost like an atheist that's defending his case with God's air. You know what I mean? It's like this idea that we don't even realize that the fact that we're sustained and we live today is because God is sustaining us, even when we deserve his wrath to be poured out on us immediately. So, what will be the ultimate price? that our plagiaristic hearts will have to pay. God's wrath will be poured out on us. And there will be a day that God will give us what our hearts really want. Where does our idolatry lead us? Immorality. God giving us what we want. See, there's something we have to explore about the agency of mankind and the sovereignty of God. So what is human agency? It's kind of a psychological kind of term, but I want to, I think it makes sense to us. So it's the capacity for image bearers of God to make choices and impose those choices on our unique domain of influence. In other words, it's our free will, right? We have this free will that we get to exercise. In this life, we are all 100% free to choose what we really want. Sometimes people accuse Presbyterians of not believing in free will. No, we believe in free will. We just believe it's way worse than you think it is. Um, God does not manipulate our will. We are never forced or coerced against our will. We do what we want, and we get what we want every single time, friends. No one is in hell uh, against their will, and no one will be in heaven against their will. And I'm basically summarizing the entire chapter of uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter nine. You can read it. But free will means that man freely chooses according to his nature, his condition. Uh, He cannot be coerced by some external force to do something that he does not want to do. It would violate his free will, it would violate his agency. If something comes up from your human agency or your free will, it happens because you ultimately want it to happen. If you gossip about a friend and you accidentally get caught and you say, "I didn't mean to say that," you're lying. What you meant. What you meant was, I didn't mean to get caught saying that, right? You did what you wanted to do. The thing that, we, the thing that happens when we are exercising our free will from our fallen condition condition is we are not calculating the consequences, right? We're not, thinking about the con- We're not thinking about wrath every time we step into rebellion against God and our disobedience. We're not doing that. We're muting the consequences and, and maximizing uh, the, 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 the gratification in the moment. But there's this other aspect of free will that must be addressed. It's the human condition. Our will follows our nature. You act, a, you act out of who you are. What we do flows from who we are. When we are not spiritually alive through Christ, we only choose to sin no matter how good it looks. Because the Bible says if we're not in Christ, we're dead in sin, and Martin Luther wrote extensively on this in his book, The The Bondage of the Will. And here here it is in a nutshell. Fallen man does not have the desire or the ability to choose spiritual good. Unregenerate man left to himself will always choose to sin and will not... Choose God. And here it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 14. Here's what Paul says. He says, the natural man, the man in his natural fallen condition without the Spirit of God reviving his heart, um, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. This is why what happens out there seems so crazy to a spiritual person, right? And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Does that make sense? That, that, that free will is terrible news unless you're spiritually alive because basically it's just different ways to live in bondage to sin. That's what free will is. We are always and only getting what we want, which is sin and eternal separation from God unless he chooses to intervene by his grace and mercy and make us alive. And we receive that through the gift of faith in the spirit. We need, in other words, we need God to save us from ourselves, friends. Amen? And this is what Paul is going to unpack. This is where the rest of the sermon's going here. The fallen condition unraveling before us. Let's take a peek behind the curtain. Where's this train headed that we're on in our rebellion against God? Because without God's mercy, it's a really dark road. Romans 1 through 32. Therefore, God gave them up. Goodness, what a terrifying phrase. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God gave them up. No matter how close or far from God you feel like you are, the only reason that any of us are close to God is because God has come near to us in Jesus and now holds us close to our Father through faith by the Holy Spirit. John 6 says basically that Jesus will not lose one person that the Father has trusted in him. You're close to God because God has found you and he's brought you close and he's keeping you close. We don't deserve that, but there will be a day fully and finally where his restraining grace will be eradicated from the face of the earth. Francis Schaeffer explains this phrase like this. He says, imagine you've got a dog that's just a bad dog. A dog that every time you go out, they just drag you around the park, barks at every person, tries to bite kids, and the only thing from Keeping them from harm is the leash that you hold. I'm not even gonna mention a breed of dog because I don't want to make any enemies, but I think it was a pit bull, all right? Um you can send me an email about that one, I'll respond to that one. So imagine, he says this. Imagine if you were to just let go of the leash on that bad dog. What would happen when it was being disobedient? What if you just let go of the leash? This is what it would be like without God's grace in this world today. Everybody would just have their leash let go and we are all the bad dog in some way. We are all sinful and flawed and we live out of that nature unless Jesus intervenes and the world would be totally depraved. We would just devour one another without God's grace that we enjoy today. We think that it's bad, but it could be so much worse. Paul's saying that there are even evidences in this world today of God letting the leash go, right? We see it happen, and it is devastating to us when sin is so pervasive in our culture. Is that God's fault? No, it's not God's fault. He never had an obligation to put a leash on a lost dog in the first place. But it was out of love that he's done that. And Paul takes us deeper into this pit of immorality. Verse 26 and 27, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passion. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who are consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. First century Roman culture was not all that different than life here in the West today. Homosexuality has always been a part of the particular way sin has permeated the earth. Just go read Genesis. It's not a 21st century thing. We're not that all, we're not all that unique. There's no, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And one of the most controversial and explicit teachings about this in the Bible, this text right here, Paul lays out this truth that those that engage in an active homosexual relationship, regardless of the degree of engagement, are in sin. Now, of course, uh, you expect me to say that this morning, or maybe you didn't, I don't know. But Paul goes further to say that the reason it's sin is, is far deeper than we, than we think, It's sin because it seeks to defy the natural design of humanity, which is first and foremost an offense against God vertically before it ever is horizontally. What does the design of gender point to when understood biblically? Our marriage to Christ. Either as a single person or a married couple, it's all about Jesus. That's the whole design of gender. Christopher West wrote a helpful, distilled version of John Paul II's seminal work, The Theology of the Body. And I want to read it to you real quick. Not the whole thing. (laughs) Just a quote. If the union of the sexes is the main sign in this world of our call to union with God, and this is what Paul says in Ephesians 5, that it is. It's it's the main picture. And if there is an enemy who wants to separate us from God, and there is, right? Right? Where do you think he's going to aim his most potent arrows? If we want to know what is most sacred in the world, all we need to look at, at what is, look at what is most violently profaned. It is sobering in the uttermost to think that all the sexual confusion in our world today might be the unfolding of a diabolic plot to separate us from one another and God. The battle for one's soul is fought over the truth of his body, It's no mere coincidence that Paul follows his presentation of the ultimate meaning of gender, sex, and marriage in Ephesians 5 with this call to spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. Now, I don't move into this topic lightly. Um, And I know that this this particular type of immorality is not even the only form of immorality, not even the only form that Paul mentions in this text. In verse 24, he talks about sexual immorality in general. And I also know that this part, um, that that this piece of immorality has affected many of our family's stories, mine included, some of our children, and some of our own journeys. And so I say all of that as a caveat. It's kind of an entry point to say, I've got to say something, and I don't want to hurt you, but I've got to speak what God's called me to speak to you, friends. So let me just say five things that I know for sure. Engaging in an active and ongoing lifestyle of homosexuality is sin. But it's not the worst sin, and it's not even close to the sin that gets the most airtime in the Bible. Second thing is this. People that I love deeply are gay, lesbian, and trans. And I don't want to treat them differently. And I'm sorry if I'm awkward. I don't want to punish people with my absence, but it's so challenging for us to enter in at times, isn't it? I know that I'm messed up and I need God's grace just as much as anyone else on the face of the planet. And sometimes, frankly, I and maybe many of you just don't know how to enter in. And so we just avoid. I don't think that's the answer, friends. Thirdly, I want New City Church to be known More for what it's for than for what it's against. I also want this to be a church that a person who wants to walk out of that lifestyle could do it with brothers and sisters that see and celebrate the image of God in him or in her. And that has to be a church where this topic can be put on the table in our journey of sanctification and conversion. And if, and if our groups, if our, the culture of our groups, whether they're discipleship groups or MCs or cohorts, if the culture of those groups are so toxic, this will never be a church that that can happen in. Friends, the prodigals of the, of the sexual revolution have to, uh, have to have a place to come home. Why can't this church be one of those places? We've got to posture ourselves to be able to do that. The other thing I note, number four, if we do not inform our children and dialogue about this, someone else will. I want to encourage each and every one of you, no matter what your parents modeled for you, no matter how comfort- uncomfortable it makes you, to beat your kids' friends to the punch. To beat your kids' media intake to the punch. To beat your kids' school to the punch. And why must we beat them to the punch? Because they are teaching a sexuality ethic that flows from the fallen condition, not the creative design of God. So when we start with the design, we start with what God intended as beautiful in the garden. It changes everything about how we teach the distortions. But when you start start with the distortions, you're constantly battling up to the design. We have an opportunity church and we have to get out of out of the way of our own fear in order to engage and so whatever that means for you today i would encourage you to pursue it if you're like man i just can't do it i don't even know where to start i had a buddy call me this week he's like i don't even know where to start i'm like start somewhere i think we imagine this kind of one-time talk and it's just we're good to go now we're what we're doing is we're turning on a faucet in the winter and letting it drip We're dripping truth into our kids' souls every time that the threat against the ethics that God has designed comes up against them. We're pausing the show. We're saying, hey, let's talk a little bit about that. We're stopping at the dinner table. We're saying, hey, man, this happened at the playground today. It's really weird, Dad. What do you think? We're not shutting it down and ignoring it. We're inviting the conversation because that's the essence of discipleship. Lastly, the road to repentance is often Mm-hmm. Far more costly and challenging than we could ever imagine for those that desire to walk out of this lifestyle. You need to know how much it costs. I was reminded of that as I journeyed with a friend of mine a few years ago. This friend was really interested in our church, and you know he was he was curious about could he become a member and what would that look like. And I said, hey man, our church will love on you, love to. And he was just kind of nailing me down. Um, and he said, man, I'm a believer. I just you know I just This is kind of where I'm at. And I said, well, let's just study the scriptures together. And that that was the first decision that I made. This fellow said, hey, look, I'm a believer in Jesus. I said, let's get to the Bible, man. Let's get to it. Now, the place that he expected me to start was where? Romans chapter one. You know why? Because that's what the church does. We beat up sinners all day long, and we push them away. I started in Genesis one with him. We journeyed for 10, 11, 12 weeks together through Genesis through other parts of the scripture, looking at God's beautiful design and what he's called us to and what he's called us to live into. And then this miraculous kind of conversation happened at our time together that was this thing that really surprised me. At our last meeting, he said to me, I know what God's design is. The cost is just too high for me right now and the risk is too scary for me to follow him. And I thought, man, man, praise God, praise God that you've counted the cost and you know what the cost of repentance is. I just wish the church would know what the cost is, the cost of losing all of your friends to follow Jesus, the cost of losing all of your community to follow Jesus. You walk out a lifestyle of alcoholism or, or any other kind of addiction or any other kind of habitual sin, you don't lose everything. The Stakes are high will the church be present? That's my question for us today. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, of evil, of covetousness and malice. They're full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice such things. If you weren't offended yet, you are now. What we're seeing here is something really humbling that I don't want you to miss. That disobeying parents or gossip is just as indicative of idol worship as something as pungent as sexual immorality. Do you live that way though? Or are we constantly the kinds of people that are pointing the finger at the really dirty rotten sinners over there? Because they're all together in God's sight. No matter, so we should spend less time comparing the ways in which we are enslaved to sin and more time considering the fact that without the mercy of God and his grace, we are all enslaved to sin. No matter which word on this list hits you the hardest, and I'm almost certain at least one of them did, if you continue in that path, it all leads to the same destination no matter which lane you're in, is what Paul is saying to us. And why? Because the image of God in and through us is suppressed because we've exchanged his glory for the creation instead and everything is distorted and everything is dark. Without the grace of God redeeming the image of God in us and restoring his image throughout the world and how we live, we will experience this slow and decaying uh, degradation of idolatry. And I find something really interesting. The longer that we walk in idolatry and thus live immorally, the less we see ourselves as retaining the actual image of God. Why? Because it is the scheme of the enemy to eradicate the image of God in you. And he will do, he'll do that in whatever way you let him. Vincent van Gogh died an early self-inflicted death. I won't go into detail about that. He lived to be 37 years old. During the, the last 10 years of his life, things got really dark when he lived in Paris. Um, and during his life, he painted at least 36 self-portraits that, that people know of. And you can see some examples kind of of them there. Juan, can you go to the next? The, yeah, those right there. This is, this is key. So what began to happen in Van Gogh's story, I think, is what the enemy scheme is in all of us. See, when you look at 86, when Van Gogh's painting himself, and you see this intense detail in this design, but the longer he paints himself, which reflects his inner turmoil, as he wrestled with sin and he had all kinds of stuff that the enemy just had inside of him, he starts to look less and less human, doesn't he? This is what sin, friends, does to us. It starts with us not honoring God or giving thanks to him, and our hearts become more and more hardened each and every day. And eventually, sin leads us to this hopeless and lonely place. And it leads us there in different ways, and it leads to different things when we get to that place. But it's where we feel the weight of our rebellion without the fellowship of God and other believers. It's dark. And the enemy has this one big desire for you, to convince you that you do not have a maker, that you do not have a creator who designed you fearfully and wonderfully, and that you are not made in his image. The great exchange that will undo all of this is when Christ himself will offer himself as a substitute in our place. Friends, the wrath of God is our present and our future without Jesus. And it is so, so weighty. If you're in here and you're not in Jesus, the wrath of God, the settled and controlled and determined hatred of sin is going to be poured out on you. And I I hate to tell you that because I want you to like me. I want you to be my friend. It's the kindest thing I can tell you to you this morning. For those that are in Christ, friends, the work is finished. The settled, controlled, and determined wrath of God against sin was poured out all on his son for the past, present, and future rebellion that you and I will engage with. And there's one way that keeps us from from that wrath being poured on us, and it's faith in him. And so today, as we turn to this table, I wanna encourage you to consider the weight of it all and where you stand. Let's pray. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God, together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.